Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is, what was Jesus' sacrifice? Last week, we talked about what is our sacrifice and came up with some interesting answers about laying aside evil and becoming merciful and treating other people well and things like that. But isn't it a little more straightforward with Jesus' sacrifice? It almost seems like a dumb question, like he gave up his physical life, you know, the ultimate sacrifice, they say. Uh, and what was the spirit of that event? There, there's a lot of talk about it in Christianity, obviously. And some of what you get is this idea that there was a separate God, the Father and the Son. The Father's angry, the Son is sacrificed, and then the Father is reconciled to the human race and feels, feels sorry for, for being so mad because Jesus earned all that merit by sacrificing himself even when he'd committed no crime. And that's the whole, you know, that's the way it's painted sometimes. And yet, I want to show you scriptures tonight, friends, that show that this whole thing, Jesus' life in the world and his death, came from love. It was an act of power. It was an act of freedom and joy. That's what scripture actually teaches about that event. And we'll see some other things. It does talk about it in terms of a sacrifice, but there's interesting passages that sound more like it was his life his life was part of this, his whole life, not just that, you know, couple of days at the end, but his whole life was part of the sacrifice. And what is that? And what does that mean to us? So if you want to come on that journey, please do, good friends. And let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You came down and were born in this world, and we thank you, Lord. We gather together in your name, opening the pages of your word, in order to see who you are. What was it that you were doing in this world? Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Okay. All right. Sending love to those of you out there online and getting the audio and on the phone and here in the room. Very nice to be with you looking at these important things. Does the Bible talk about a sacrifice and what does it mean? Let's look at those passages I alluded to first. Let's look at the famous John 3.16. This is so often cited by Christians as sort of a foundation stone. So in the New Testament, the fourth gospel there. And what is said here about the nature of how Jesus came into this world. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, now the giving there, he gave his only begotten Son. Again, it doesn't sound much like God the Father was angry, so the Son decided to come in to try to make him feel better. But the gave sounds a little bit offering-ish. I mean, a little bit sacrifice-ish, doesn't it? But... Where was God coming from in doing that? Didn't it say he was coming from love? Didn't say anger. So interesting that that's such a cornerstone, and yet people have taken that as about the divine anger and the sacrifice, but it says that God so loved the world mm, so that people would not perish but have everlasting life by what the Son did when he came into the world. And have a look at John chapter 10. So turn to the right. Let's go to John 10. 
And I just want to read right now. We might read a little more of this later. But verse 18, this is Jesus talking about, uh, oh, we just have to read 17 and 18. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus was commanded to go through this, but he had the power to do it. It wasn't, you know, sometimes when you think about a martyrdom or something, it it sounds like sort of a, a, a powerless thing maybe. I don't know. But the fact that Jesus... Um, had the power that he could just choose to lay it down. So that's power and freedom, isn't it? I choose to lay down my life. I can take it up again. He knew from this side of going through the crucifixion that he, could, that he was going to be resurrected, that he had the power to take it up again and was given this by the Father. And what is that life that he laid down? He laid down his life. We'll read some more and think about that some more in a little bit. And I want you to turn into the middle of the epistles. Just close your eyes and stab, and hopefully you'll hit the Hebrews in the middle there somewhere. And uh, it's about halfway between the Acts and the book of Revelation. And it's after First and Second Timothy and all those. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And it says at the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And then verse 2 says this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah, now that is also an element that's sometimes missing. Is there a lot of thought about the fact that this was joyful there was a joy that was set before him, and this is why he came into the world. It was a, there was an element of a happy thing that pulled him through the enduring of the cross. But so joy, love, power, freedom, you know, those are not words that you usually think of. And you think of Jesus as loving the human race, but God being angry. But it said it was God did the loving, you know, and, and that, uh, that this was joyful to go through this, and that he had power and freedom to, to do this. So those are some initial passages I wanted to look at just to sort of start thinking about this a little bit. And now let's read some passages that frame it in terms of a sacrifice, and I want to look carefully at these to try to think about what that sacrifice was. Let's go to the middle of your Bible, and uh, roughly around the Psalms and Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah is to the right of the Psalms. Chapter 53. This whole chapter we did a Bible study on on January 4th of 2012 called The Arm of Jehovah. And we looked at this whole passage. And part of what we concluded there is that it said in 53 verse 1, Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of Jehovah. And then it says all this and it sounds like it's about the father and the son, and that the father is tormenting the son or something. But if that's his own arm, it kind of changes it a little bit. That was what we came to in that Bible study. Uh, I just want to jump down to verse 10 here in the interest of time. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now this is, sounds like a person, he was, you know, he'll grow up before him as a tender plant and all this. He's despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Uh, and so people have taken this to be talking about Jesus. He was wounded in verse 5 for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we're healed. And then in verse 10, say that again. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Mm. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? There's a lot in that verse. It says, you make his soul an offering for sin. So that sounds sacrificial, right? that you would make his, his soul or his life, you know, that, that he would be an offering for sin, which sounds terrible. And yet what would Jesus get out of it? That he prolongs his days and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Which turns out well, right? Hmm. There's pleasure, again, the sense of joy. Here's pleasure. So it doesn't sound like uh, a sort of gut-wrenching... Uh, kind of sacrifice of like, this is just going to be absolutely horrible, but I'll do it for other people. So it says there's pleasure and joy on the, on the other side. So what is going on there? And it's interesting that it doesn't say that you would make his body an offering for sin, but his soul, right? His mm-hmm. soul. That's a little, that's, that's interesting. Okay, let's keep thinking about these. Uh, let's go, most of this is going to be in the New Testament. Let's go back to the Gospel of John, actually. And uh, let's read some more in John chapter 10, because it talks about laying down his life. Let's start at verse 11 there. This is the Lord speaking. This is Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Okay, so we're definitely in a mode of like the sacrifice of his life, giving his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Mm. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Yes, which is kind of a present tense thing. I lay down my life for the sheep. Go on. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Hmm. This command I have received from my father. Yes. Yeah. So he had that power as we were talking about before. And it is confusing. Why would you need to lay something down if you're just going to take it again? Like, why not just keep it? Why lay it down and then take it again? So this, this raises a bunch of questions. And what is that to give 
give your life in what sense? What life? His physical life? Was that the life that he gave for his sheep? His physical life? And it doesn't say that he did it for God the Father. He says he received that commandment, but it says it was for the sheep that he did it, right? Let's look at John 15. Okay. Let's start at verse 9 here in John 15. This is Jesus speaking again. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Mm. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Mm. Again, it's about joy. Go on. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Let's hit pause there for a moment and just say that um, so it's not somehow what Jesus was doing. He says a number of times, he says in Luke 9, 23, you know, uh, take up your cross and follow me daily, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, what he was going through was something that we go through. So how do we lay down our life for our friends? Let's keep thinking about that. Go on. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, hmm. and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Yes, so love. It's just interesting in these, it's curious, isn't it, that in these um, passages that have something to do with sacrifice or the laying down of life, love and joy and all these positive words are hanging around the textual, you know, fringes there. Interesting. Okay, let's go to... John 17, verses 1 to 5. This is a very interesting passage to me. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Now this hour has come. You know, this is shortly before his crucifixion. In fact, about half of John takes place in that last week before the crucifixion. And uh, so he's talking about this moment of his death, it seems, and uh, that he asks the Father to glorify him. That's the first thing he starts with, is glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is... in. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one, sorry, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Yes, let's pause there. And um, Okay, there's a lot in this, and it gets into some pretty heavy theology and so on, but um, I'm very intrigued by that phrase, I have glorified you. See, the first thing he says in verse 1, right, is he says, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. But then he says in verse 4, that he's already done it, right? I have glorified you, but where? On the earth. I've glorified you on the earth. So the glorification on the earth is already done. And very intriguing, that next phrase, he is not on the cross. He's not in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is after the, the supper, if memory serves. And there he is. And what does he say in the second half of verse 4 there? I have finished the work which you have given me to do. It's already done. Now, wait a minute. He hasn't even started being crucified yet, and the work is done. What work is that if what he was doing here was to die for our sins? How is that already accomplished? He hasn't done it yet. So what is that? And then he asks again in verse 5, Now... Glorify me, right, with your own self, with the glory which I have with you before the world was. So I glorified you on the earth, but there's another stage that has to happen. Let me hit, uh, uh, let, let me just talk about this a little bit right now. The um, Swedenborg says, as you may know, and this is particularly in true Christianity in his chapter on the Lord the Redeemer, second chapter there, that uh, there is a fundamental distinction that must be maintained between the Lord's activity of redemption and His activity of glorification. What the glorification means is what we're reading about here, the making of His human self divine. That transformation from human to divine is what's called, it's not, we use the word glorify to mean to say something is glorious or to praise it or something, right? But this is another meaning of glorify, which is to actually make it glorious, you know, to, to make that lower self uh, divine. So that's the glorification. Uh, the cross, says Swedenborg, was an act of glorification, not redemption. Now, what does that mean? It sounds, sounds heady. Uh, when Jesus says the work is already done, he had already finished the work of redemption before he ever went to the cross. A lot of people think that the redemption from hell was what Jesus did on the cross. Oh, he's, you know, that act of being, you know, allowing himself to be killed was what took care of sin. And if we look at him, if we have that image in our minds of him on the cross, then that cleanses us from our sin and, and we're, we're okay. We believe in him and that gives us everlasting life. Uh, the problem with that is that Jesus says, I've already done the work. I already done the work that you gave me to do. He had two main functions. One was the redemption, which was a function of straightening hell out, getting power over it, uh, so that he could help anybody who wanted his help from then on forever. And the, that was the redemption, and that was already done. You know, there's another passage in there where he says, "I, you know, uh, I saw Satan cast like lightning out of heaven." Uh, uh, that was, and there's somewhere else where he says, now is the prince of this world cast out. And, 
Uh, that work was already done before he even got to the cross. A lot of people don't understand this. What the cross was, was his own glorification. That's why he says twice in here, glorify me. And then he says, I've already glorified you on the earth. Like that, that part is done. But there's another part, a spiritual part that still has to happen. The work, that, the work of redemption is over. The glorification still has to take place. A little bit heady, but it's an important distinction. Look at uh, Romans, so turn to the right, go through Acts, and uh, you get into Paul's epistle to the Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Very, very striking statement here. Again, you know, we could, we could read all kinds of things. Um, uh, let's read verses 8, 9, and 10. They, they are important here. Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, God's love for us. Again, same as in John 3.16. Go on. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, it's interesting. What tense... Dear reader, you are a learned person, a multilingual person. Uh, what... What verb tense might you say that the word justified is here? Well, that sounds like a past tense. Yes, I would agree with you. <laughs> and what tense would you say that the saved part is? That is a future, shall be it saved. It seems like that's a future, isn't it? Yeah. Like the salvation and the justification are separate in time. Mm -hmm. The justification already happened... But the salvation is future. We shall be saved through him. And then what does it say in verse 10? This is, this is really striking to me. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Okay, I'm, now that's quite a mouthful there. Yes. Uh, let's, let's read that again and... and uh, and let's pause now and then. Okay, give it a, give it a go. For if when we were enemies... We okay, I think what the enemies there is referring to is it talked sinners? in two verses up while we were yet sinners. Like we're not on board yet. So we were actually enemies of the Lord. We were living the wrong type of life and everything. If when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Now, dear reader, may I call on your grammatical and linguistic skill again? Yes. To tell me whether that sentence means that God was reconciled to us, or does it mean that we were reconciled to God? Well, it says we were reconciled to God. And would those be actually contrasting situations from your sense of the passive voice? <laughs> yes, they would be contrasting. They would be contrasting situations. So it's not that God was... Never in Scripture does it say that God was reconciled to anybody ever. He never had a problem. It wasn't about God being reconciled. There's a rumor going around that God was reconciled. doesn't say that. We had a problem. We were reconciled to God. We were the ones with the problem. God didn't have a problem. So the story that God had a problem, and then Jesus fixed it by reconciling God to us, is the word, it doesn't fit with the verbs. Maybe they didn't know the passive voice or something. I don't know. So, okay, 
If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So that death was a reconciliation. Okay, it got us, you know, it turned us in the right direction. So we're starting a relationship again or something. What is the rest of that? Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And would you say there that the reconciled is in the past tense? Yes, I would. And would you say that the saved is in the future tense? Yes. And what is it that saved? Is it his death in this verse that saves us? No, no. It is not his death, dear reader? No, no. What is it then that (laughs) saved us? His life. His life saved us? Wow. You never told me that. Where was this hiding when all this, you know, all this theology was being cranked out? It says that, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So that was important. Something happened there. You know, there was a shift in our relationship to God that moved us in some sense. But much more, it says, much more. Like that was a minor situation. But a major situation (laughs) is that having been reconciled, we shall in the future be saved by his life. Saved by his life. Now, this is definitely a sort of a sacrifice justified by his blood and his death and all this kind of stuff. And yet, it's not quite the way that we've been told it is. Right? It, it's, it's somewhat different that we're going to be saved by his life. The death did some reconciliation, but having been reconciled, we will be saved in the future. We will be saved by his life. What is that life? What is the life that he laid down and that we are supposed to lay down? Greater love than this has no one, but to lay down their life for their friends. And what was that life that he laid down? And what is that life of his that saves us? It's an interesting question. Let's go to the right to 1 Corinthians. Other than that, we've had perfect understanding of the, of, of the Jesus situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, there's another sacrifice, good old sacrifice passage. Um, oh, Paul's sentences are always endlessly long. First Corinthians chapter five. Let's start at verse five, even though we're in the midst of a sentence. Dot, dot, dot. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. Saved salvation in the future again. Okay. Your glorifying is not good. Hmm. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little leaven. You know, that's referring to yeast, right? You have some dough and just, just take a little bit of yeast and then the whole, the whole thing rises. But what is he talking about? He's not talking about making bread. What is he saying? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Hmm. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. If you have to be a lump, at least you can become <laughs> a new lump, right? <laughs> the, <laughs> but there it said something about Christ being, Christ our Passover, interesting. So Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, and it's talking about unleavened bread, Purge out the old leaven, 
so that you may be new. You know, make your dough, you've got the wrong leaven in you. You need different leaven in order to become a new lump of dough, a new, you know, that's going to become bread. You are unleavened now, kind of thing. And then what was that last bit again? In um, verse 7? Thank you. Uh, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Christ our Passover was sacrificed. Hmm. Okay, let's read the next verse to see if we get any um, light on this. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Oh! But Come. with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Huh. Wow. I love it when Scripture tells you that it's being metaphorical. The leaven isn't mere physical yeast for making bread. The leaven is, what was it again? The leaven of malice and wickedness. Malice and wickedness. Yeah, you see, the, the, um, whatever that leaven is, it leavens the whole lump. Like that kind of spirit that's in you makes your whole self a certain way. So if your leaven is malice and wickedness, that's bad, right? But what we want is the unleavened bread of what? Sincerity and truth. Hmm. Sincerity and truth. So it's such a clear, it uses the word sacrifice. It talks about Passover and everything. And yet it's in this kind of spiritualized context of talking about getting rid of malice and wickedness and instead adopting sincerity and truth and really kind of interpreting the Old Testament Passover ceremony in a new sort of more spiritual light, isn't it? Fascinating. Let's try to forget that as rapidly as possible. We'll move on to Galatians. Let's go through First uh, and Second Corinthians, and we'll get to Galatians chapter 1. And it talks about Jesus Christ at the end of verse 3, and then it says this in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. There it is. That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Yes. So there's another kind of sacrifice passage. He gave himself for our sins. Sounds like he offered himself up or sacrificed himself. And his purpose was to deliver us from this present evil age. That's what he, that's what he wanted to do. And yet we were already told a couple of times tonight, that it was his life, not his death, that has this salutary effect, it seems. And in John there, how redemption was something that was already accomplished before he ever got near the cross. The work that he had to do was already done. Hmm, interesting. Okay, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. That's the next one to the right. And let's just look at verses 1 to 4. Five. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Imitators. Interesting. Imitators of God. Okay. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Okay, hold on a second there. That's another very clear offering and sacrifice image with this sweet-smelling aroma that that rises up, right? 
And yet, it's not a really dark sort of context, is it? It says, be imitators of God. Interesting. How are we supposed to imitate what the Lord went through? Be imitators of God and walk in love. So presumably, that's what it means by be imitator, right? Walk in love. That's what Jesus was doing in this world, walking in love. As Christ also loved us. Now, a lot of those other passages were about God loving us, right? But this is Christ loving us. And he gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for this sweet-smelling aroma. And then what comes right up in the next verse? Context is so interesting in these things. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Go on, one more. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. So you might think the sacrifice was just one and done. Jesus did the sacrifice and that fixed everything for all of us for all time. But the very next thing it says is stop doing the fornicating and the uncleanness and the covetousness and the filthiness and the, the you know, sarcasm and, and all that being unclean and idolatrous and because you won't have any inheritance with the Lord under that circumstance. So doesn't that, it's, a, it's an interesting passage, but doesn't it seem again, walk in love. Walk in love. Did Jesus start walking in love at the very end of his life? Like that last day he walked in, is that what it's talking about? Or was it the fact that he walked in love throughout his life in this world? Is that does that have something to do with the sacrifice? You see what I mean, friends? All right, let's go to go to the middle, go to Hebrews again. Where we were. Hebrews chapter 9, though. And we really could usefully read about 50 verses in a row here because it's all about this. But let's just pick out, just cherry pick some verses here. Uh, so let's do 9 verses 13 and 14. For if oh, the blood... Oh, look at, look at 12. Ooh. Not wow. with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now there again, doesn't it sound like the redemption is in the past tense? Having obtained redemption, then he went into the Holy of Holies... Right, He already got the redemption. It wasn't his going in there that did it. And this is talking about Jesus, of course. By his own blood, he entered once into the Holy of Holies. And then verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, <coughs> sanctifies for the, pu for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So something about what Christ did here, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. So that offering, you were always supposed to get an unblemished animal, 
And so he offered himself without spot, which is surely a reference to the other passages that say that he was without sin. He was tempted like as we are, but without sin, it says. And so he was without spot and he offered himself. So we're definitely in kind of a sacrifice mode here. And yet this is talking about purging our conscience from what? Purging our conscience from what? Um, From dead works to serve the living God. Well, how would his doing an act change our behavior? How is his doing something 2,000 years ago going to change my behavior? Just like, bing, oh, it magically changed my behavior. No, somehow, whatever the blood of Christ means here, and whatever Jesus was doing, offering himself without spot, this helps us cleanse our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. Well, that's a process to get rid of those dead works, to cleanse our conscience. You know, that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, That's an interesting passage to me. Have a look at verse uh, 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. It's just been talking about blood up there. Yep. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Uh Uh-huh. Keep going. Uh, uh, Let's skip down to verse 26. Um, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is a strange phrase, isn't it? The sacrifice of himself. So he's come here and he, he was talking about in the passage how the high priest would go in once a year. But Jesus didn't have to do this again and again and again. It only happened once. He appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's read on. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Again, this sense that salvation is separate from it. Isn't it interesting how often there's sort of a time distance or something? The salvation is separate. This happened, and then things happened there, and they were real. But there's a, there's a, that's separated from this salvation that's coming later. Look at chapter 10. Uh, look at verse 5. Oh, look at verse 4. That's interesting. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Interesting statement. You know, this is sort of part of the foundation of the Old Testament. And yet here it's saying, that's not going to do anything to sin. It just doesn't. That's not how it works. Go on. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Mm. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Yes, now to do your will, the doing of the, of the Lord, was, was God's will just that he go through that painful thing at the end of his life, or was it his whole life that he went through? You see what I mean? And uh, Verse 8 also talks about how God has no pleasure in burnt offering and sacrifice, just like we were talking about last week, if you happen to catch that. And uh, look at um, 
Uh, let's start at verse 10 down there. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Def clearly taught as an offering. Definitely a sacrifice. The body of Christ, right? It said earlier the soul, right? It said the soul, but here it does say the body. Mm-hmm. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Wow. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now we've read the right hand of God a few times, haven't we? Didn't it say in Hebrews 12 verse 2 that... Uh, you know, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame and was set down at the right hand of God, it said. And here it says that he went through this to, be, to sit down at the right hand of God. Mm. Okay, now these, these sound very offering-ish and sacrifice-ish, and yet it's talking about the doing of God's will. Um... And I have a question for you in a moment, but let's go on here. Uh, just a few more. So if you turn to the right through James, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is a very clear passage to me about the relationship between Christ's suffering and what we're supposed to go through. Because it's confusing. Like, how are we supposed to follow that? Jesus says, take up your cross daily. How are we, are we supposed to martyr ourselves? When, when would we do that? What, what are we supposed to be doing? And what was, what was the Lord exactly doing? What was, what was his sacrifice? It's not as simple a question as you think at first. Look at the first few verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Mm. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Not me. I, I never did that. But um, look at that. That is an interesting passage. Let's contemplate that a little bit, friends, here. It's likening Christ's suffering to what we go through, but it's like lightening Christ's suffering to like giving up drinking parties, isn't it? You know, I'm not trying to be funny here. Doesn't it, doesn't it kind of say that Christ suffered for us in the flesh, so you automatically think, oh, that's the cross. He went through that physical pain on the cross. He suffered for us. But then it says, it doesn't say do the same thing with your body. It says arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. What mind? A, a mind? Like a mindset or a purpose or something? What does it mean? For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is someone who's still alive. Right? You can tell from the next verse that he no longer should lift the rest of his time in the flesh, this is the old King James, to the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And what was that wonderful wording in verse 3 that you had there? For we have spent enough of our past lifetime. Haven't in, we, friends? In doing the will of the Gentiles. 
when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. This is clearly about our lifestyle. It's about every day of our lives. It's about the way that we conduct ourselves, not about how we die. It's not about what were we doing at the moment of death. It's about that whole thing. So wait a minute, what was that suffering for us in the flesh that Christ, it, was it just talking about that last day that, that he had? Or was it earlier than that? When he said, take up your cross daily, the disciples had no idea he was going to die on a cross. They had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, but he already had a cross. And he said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and do as I'm doing. He was already doing it. Mm, very interesting. Okay, and one more. Let's turn to the right to 1 John, which is the more or less next thing that comes up there. Chapter 3, we read John 3, 16. Let's read 1 John 3, 15 and 16. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So wait a minute. Huh. Whoever, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Ten Commandments, right? And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So murder is the opposite of eternal life. And hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives. Isn't the implication that our life that we're supposed to lay down is our life as a murderer or a person who feels like throttling people sometimes if you don't actually carry it out or whatever. Isn't that what it's talking about? Or hating, you know, if you ever hated somebody, isn't it the life of hatred? He laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives. Very interesting. All right, so now we'll wrap this up with a nice neat bow and the whole doctrine of the Trinity and what Jesus was doing here in the nature of sacrifice will become abundantly clear, right? <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Okay, so um, one question I've had, and some of you have been around long enough with this Bible study, you may have heard me ask this before. Something I've pondered a lot is if the idea of Jesus coming into this world was for the sake of a sacrifice that would sort of break the God the Father's heart and make him feel sorry for the human race, even though he hated them and even though they were horrible, he, he would change his mind and feel compassion because of the, of the, of the unbelievable, you know, what Jesus did that he committed no crime and yet he died a criminal's death. And that would provoke all this tremendous compassion in the heart of God the Father. Why wait until Jesus was 33? Why not do it when he was two? Why not let Herod kill him when he was a little child? Wouldn't that be even more moving? If the whole point is to move the heart of God the Father, wouldn't it be more moving to lose him as a little child? Uh, it doesn't make sense. And it's said in Romans 5.10, we're saved by his life. We shall be saved by his life. His life was important. What he was going through, the work that he was doing, um, all right. Okay, so you think about the Passover. You think about a sacrifice. 
right? There was a sacrificial lamb and so on that was offered at the Passover. We've been studying about this for a while in this Bible study about the altars and the burnt offerings and all that sort of thing. And I was thinking intensely this week about what is that animal? How was Jesus like an animal and what, what did he do that was a sacrifice and how did that have some effect on sin? And this is what came to me is that um, Swedenborg has this glorious phrase. I didn't um, I try to do it from memory. I, I didn't look it up for you, friends. I'm sorry. I'm just in my defense. I'm lazy and a terrible person. As someone, <laughs> I read this wonderful blog recently that said that. I thought that was so funny. The, um, <laughs> I didn't look it up for you. But Swedenborg says at some point that we are worse than animals in our outer selves. Our outer selves, animals are wonderful. They're born in the order of their lives. They have good and truth completely conjoined in them and they do what they do or, you know, and they're just driven by these loves, to, you know, to reproduce and eat and protect themselves and so on. Uh, uh, we are more animalistic or bestial, whatever you'd say, than, than animals are in our lower selves. Our lower selves are animals and evil animals. Swedenborg says at one point, how many of us are not born satyrs and priapuses or else uh, lizard-like quadrupeds? <laughs> and how many of us, as the result of our upbringing education, become more than an ape? In other words, our old life, the life that we start out in, it really clicked with me this week. We are, you're wearing the animal. You know, this is the animal. Our outer self is the animal. That we are the animal. Now, uh, wow, this gets into some more heady stuff. You can handle it, right, everybody? <laughs> you got this. Um, it's very important for that outer self to have autonomy. Didn't it say that Jesus had power? Jesus. It's not God the Father, Jesus, which means the divine love and the eternal part of himself and all that. But Jesus had power to lay his life down, had the power to take it again. He had freedom. There was joy and everything. Uh, that autonomy, he says, I received this commandment from my Father. So he's executing it, but it's up to him to do it. Um, when you have two beings, one of whom is more powerful than the other, it is of the utmost necessity that the weaker one call the shots in order for there to be any kind of partnership. There's no, there's, no, there's no partnership between a stronger person just being stronger and the weaker person just being dragged along for a ride. That's not a partnership. The weaker of the two needs to take the lead. Uh, in order to set the, you know, the example I've used before in Bible study is if you have two musicians sitting down and one is really expert and one's just been playing for a couple of years. you got to play what the one who hasn't been playing as long, the, the, that one can't keep up with the one who's been playing forever. The one who's been playing forever has to bring it down to the level of the one who's just been playing for a couple of years. Uh, otherwise, there'll be no partnership. The other one can just do, go on a great riff and this one can hold their guitar and just look or something. But if you're going to play a song together, it's got to be the one that the weaker one can play. 
uh, that's the way that it works. In ourselves, our outer self is the weaker one. We're all wearing the weaker one. And strange to say, when Jesus was born into this world, he had a divine soul. He was God himself born in the human flesh, but still he had this little one-year-old, two-year-old. He was a kid. And it was of the utmost importance. If we could be sort of blown away by what's in our inner self, and therefore it's up to the outer self to run the, run the relationship, very important that it, it does, has this siphoning effect. I'm just remembering that Swedenborg uses all these anatomical analogies too. That the heart doesn't go out to all the cells and say, I'm giving you calcium. Here, take this. Take this sodium. You know, the, cell, the heart just pumps blood and the cells go, ooh, sodium. And they take the sodium. You know, it's the weaker of the two. And it's very important that that cell has autonomy and says, I need calcium. Oh, there's some sodium. I need that. It was very important with Jesus, even though he was the embodiment of God, he was, had a human mother, and it was very important for him to say, I want in, not for God to just blast through and just blow the doors off, you know? And so he needed to have that autonomy. He needed to have freedom. He had the power to, t to lay down his life and to take it up again. Um, so, the sacrifice, we need to get our outer self, if at all possible, to be the best animal it can possibly be. As far as that outer self can ever get on its own is just an ape rather than, you know, a lizard like quadruped or something. You know, that's as far as the, you go up the, you know, cursus honorum and that's, that's as far as you get. <laughs> but the... Uh, <laughs> but in order to become human, the magic has to happen. The best we can do is get ourselves to the point of being a good, you know, somewhat, I mean, we're all blemished, so you never really get there. What did it say? Those sacrifices, you know, that can't take away sin and everything. We have to get ourselves to the point of being, try to get the most sheep-like part of ourselves, a part that wants to follow God. The farthest we can get, we can't get to human, we can, at the best, we can get to sheep or an ox or a goat, you know, a lamb, a turtle dove, something like that. Uh, then we hand it over to God. And God, that divine love, takes our best shot, which was really, in truth, an abysmal failure. Uh, but it was our best shot of trying to collaborate from our own autonomy and then the Lord says, oh, I'm glad you bought into the program. I'm going to give you what you really desire. I'm going to turn you human. I'm going to make you like Pinocchio. It's an interesting story. You know, you have the puppet and then it becomes real. You know, uh, I'm going to make you real. And this is that transformation. The fascinating thing is that this even applied in the case of Jesus. Even though he had a divine soul, his outer self still had to do the whole outer self thing. It had to have autonomy. Otherwise, that divine soul would have just blown the doors off. So he had to go through that whole process. His sacrifice was not the giving up of his physical life, or certainly not only the giving up of his physical life at the end. That was a very big deal and was part of his glorification. It wasn't what redeemed us. It, that, you know, that part wasn't what conquered hell. He'd already done that through his life. 
he became the best animal that he could be, the Passover lamb. And then that was offered up. And the divine love turned that into God himself, made, made it divine. And that it had to be with that autonomy. I don't know if I'm making a lick of sense, probably not. But, uh, but that's what I see in these passages. His, the, the sacrifice was his lower self. Every day. Every day. That was his sacrifice. And that's the sacrifice that we do every day. It's not at the end of our lives. It's not some glorious act of martyrdom, you know, down the road or something. It's every day offering up the best that we've got in the prayer that the Lord will make it real. And I see this, uh, this functions with the individual. This is true of the individual. This is true, I believe, of couples, marriages and so on, isn't it? How far, how far do, you, you know, do you get to do you just will yourself into a real living marriage? I don't think so, you know. You go through the motions and you do the best you can. You try to get, you know, turn it from a, some lousy animal to a good animal or something. And you pray that you can offer that up so the Lord makes it real. He's the one who makes it real. Even I was thinking when I was getting ready for this Bible study, I even think this applies to things like businesses and, you know, whole groups of people. When, when a business starts, you just got a couple, three people in their garage or something. It's not some big thumping thing that makes everybody quake and tremble at the amazing power of goodness, you know, force for good in the world. Uh, you, you do the best you can and you do a stupid job and you didn't really, and you forgot this and you did the other thing and you pray that the Lord turns that into something real. And over time, wow, it can turn real. The Lord can turn stuff real. I love this analogy that I heard years ago. I don't know if it's true or not and I don't care. I just like it. What I heard years and years ago, I've gone looking for it again, and I haven't been able to find it, but I heard that, and you may have heard me use this analogy before, that there were people who tried to create seawater. You know, they've got amazing tools for being able to analyze every chemical, all the stuff that's in, oh yeah, there's some sodium, there's a little gold, there's some silver, there's copper, there's all kinds of things in seawater. And so they made, and they took every single, now we know exactly this many parts of this, that many parts of that, and they put it all into a tank, and fish would die in there, and nothing would grow in it. But if they take one drop of real seawater and put it in the tank, everything lives. One drop. Now there's something, it seems, in seawater that's real, and, and our chemistry can't find it. We don't know what it is, but there's something real. There's something living in it. And a real seawater is able to take your whole tank of chemicals that's dead, this is a dead zone, and turn it into a living thing. I think that's what we're talking about. And so what we have to do is pour in our gold, pour in our stuff, you know, probably knowing nothing's going to live in here, you know. <laughs> but what can we do? We're trying, doing our best. And then the Lord puts in that one drop of real seawater and poof. And the whole thing can sustain life. And it gives that little magic from the Lord to it. And it becomes real, real seawater. I think it was the, the Lord's whole life, his outer self. And that to me explains why Jesus would say the work is already done. Why it would have that emphasis of like salvation is later. 
because they, they, our salvation comes as we go through that process, but it, it's not really a complete until that transformation has happened. You know, because part of what happens to you along the way is you realize, hmm, turns out I'm not salvable. You know, I mean, you come to realizations about yourself. You realize, hmm, on myself, of myself, I'm not going to do it. Even Jesus, what did he say? I'm not the one doing the works. These words are not coming from me. You know, he, he was getting that from God. He was clear about where that was coming from. And so absolutely, Jesus's death and resurrection was huge. And it's reported in every gospel. And it's a fundamental thing. And people all over the planet know about it. It's a very important moment. I don't mean to downplay that. But it was not, that was not the sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice for sin was something that Jesus was doing with his lower self every day. And that's why it was important that he lived to be 33. That's why not to die at two. It wouldn't have worked when he was two because he hadn't been through enough yet. You know, had to get to be 33. Do this work. Do the purification. And then what does he say to the Lord? Glorify me. You know, do it. Make me real. Do, do your thing. Be the altar. Be that burning divine love that, that makes things real. And we have to go through the motions and we have to fail. It's very important. If we don't go through the motions, then it doesn't look like we cared and we're not trying. Jesus definitely went through all the steps. He did all the things. And then God made that real. And I'm differentiating between God and Jesus Jesus was God in human flesh, but he had a lower self. And that's what I'm talking about. That lower self was what he sacrificed. And from the perspective of that lower self, he had to just say, please, I, I offer myself up. And it's that process is what we follow. We don't need to get physically crucified on a piece of wood. Uh, but we do need to direct our lower self into the service of God. We do need to offer our lives, our work, the things that we say and do, offer those to the Lord in the hopes that that love will transform it, turn us from animals into human beings, just as it turned Jesus from a human being into God himself, uncreate, infinite, eternal. Um, so it may sound like a silly question. What was Jesus' sacrifice? Yes, he died. He gave up his bodily life. But it was his whole life that he offered for sin, not just those last few moments. Thank you, friends, for your kind attention. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the Word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for your example, for what you did in this world. Please help us to understand the nature of your life. How is it that we are saved by your life? Teach us how to live today, how to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. Teach us, Lord, about the joy, the power, the love, the freedom that lies behind all of this. Our Father, who art in the heavens, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, friends. Let's keep on repenting.